How do you keep people engaged versus conveying them the technical info they need to know to understand it? I was trying to like zoom out and show the whole scope of the story to say like, here's where we're going to get to. You zoom back in. I'm telling stories that like I am interested in. I'm trying to like teach people about a topic they probably wouldn't have otherwise looked up. Welcome to How to Make a Science Video. find a style for your videos. You're listening to Sophie Ward and Simon Clark. And between us, we have over 10 years of experience making videos on YouTube about science. And one of us has a master's degree in science communication. It's not me. We both make science videos and we're both curious about how to best share science with the world. To work out how to find a style for your science video, this week we're talking to... I'm Kevin McKay. Online, I'm known as Bobby Broccoli. I got my start in electrical engineering, which is what I went to school for. Did a master's in photonics, which is, you know, optics related fields like that, kind of an extension of electrical engineering. And then kind of like midway through my master's, I started making videos about academic frauds. Those started to do very well. So I kind of expanded into that space with documentaries on stuff like failed mega projects, you know, just kind of going down that rabbit hole of academic ethics, frauds, um, and that's sort of captured an audience. And I combine that with 3D animation that I do in Blender to make a bit of a moving 3D PowerPoint timeline sort of thing. And I didn't realize until I was sort of looking through your channel before we did this podcast, you had quite a long backlog of videos before. Yes. Your first one that you'd recognize as your style was the kind of the forgotten controversy of the 3DS launch. That's like a turning point in your channel. What triggered that video? Yeah. So like my channel is quite old. It's like I made it in 2010. I was clearly quite young. I think I was 13 when I made my very first video. And then I started doing it more in high school, but just like about video games, which I think is like an entry point for a lot of people on YouTube because it's easy. You just get a recording software and people like, you know, you know how to talk about video games. And then throughout the years, like I was in university, I was actually studying engineering and physics. And then the big one was like, I was in my master's by this point. And the pandemic had actually like started by that point. I was working from home a lot more. I was doing my master's. I had a lot of free time. And I just kind of thought, you know, I'm getting very bored with video games. I never really had that much traction before. The 3DS one was, I mean, that's like very directly related to what I study. It's photonics. It's about EM waves. It's about like the polarization of light. How do you separate two images like through glasses? How do you do that without glasses? Honestly, that's probably one of the most, my video on my channel, that's the most directly related to what I study. And I just kind of threw it out there and it did a normal amount of views. But then in my classes, I heard about Hendrik Schoen, the very prolific physics fraudster. And that's also very directly related to my field. He dealt with semiconductors, silicon, crystals. I studied engineering physics, which is very much like solid state physics. It's like, how do semiconductors work? How do you make nanoscale technologies? So that was a very easy like segue into making a video about that. Obviously, it's a very different format. It's like three parts. It's like two hours long. And I think the plan was just, I'm going to make one of the three parts and see how it does. And if it tanked, I would have just stopped. But the first one did well, so I thought, okay, I'll I'll finish it. 
that kind of started the snowball of eventually those started getting traction. And I, I think my channel grew like I got 95% of my viewers in like one year kind of thing. Wow. Are your gaming videos still on your channel then? They are. Yeah, I was going to ask why have you kept them on? Do you, are you hoping to get a secondary gaming sort of audience coming in? Not really. Some people have asked like, oh, you should, not many people, but people are like, oh, you should like private them to like focus your channel. And I, I privated some Let's Plays because they like clogged up the, the feed. But I don't think there's a big reason to like get rid of your backlog because like I'm not ashamed of it. I was like 14 when I made it. Like I am still pretty proud of like some of them. I also think it's like useful for people to see that it took like eight years for me to get traction. Like I think it's a little misleading to just like private everything that you did up until you got successful. Then it's like, look, my YouTube algorithm genius kind of thing. Yeah. Because looking at it from the outside, you just exploded onto the scene recently. And for me, I, I found you through the Superconducting Super Collider series that you did and then went back and watched the back catalogue. Was that series another big growth spurt for the channel? It wasn't huge by that point. Well, actually, so a little bit of extra context. I had two series. It was on Hendrik Schoen and the Bogdanov Twins. And those did fairly well for my channel at the time. They got like 40,000 views. That was amazing for me. If I got more than 10,000 views, like that was a success kind of thing. But then in late 2021, I think, the Bogdanov brothers passed away within a week of each other. And the name searching of them drove a lot of traffic to that series. Oh. Then it cascaded to Hendrik Schoen. So like that one shot up and it did really well. I got like a bunch of subscribers and I was like, oh, that's it. That's over. And then like the next month, Hendrik Schoen did like 10 times that. And then that plateaued. And then from there, we kind of went back to normal, but like a new normal of like, I'm getting more views. And then it was my Ninov video, the periodic table video that yeah. has set the like the new record for the channel. So wow, so there's two things here. There's the explosive growth that you had. The overnight success took a really long time, for one thing. Yes. But also what triggered it was entirely yes. out of your control. Yes. It was a video that you'd already made and it just was lifted up by the algorithm gods. Well, it's also because there was two parts and I like... For a while, I almost didn't get part two like out because I was like trying to graduate. I graduated the month before I released like the second part. And then like two months after that, they passed away. So I'm like, so many things had to align like perfectly for that to happen. So in terms of the style of your videos, we'd spoken before about this. You've cited to me John Boyce as like a, a big stylistic influence. Was he sort of, would you say, the main motivator behind that new style of video that you made? Yes, I would say so. Because timeline wise, it was like early pandemic and I had like kind of just discovered his channel. Like he, just for context, he's been a presence online for a long time. He's a sports writer. And I think he's like the main editor for Secret Base slash SB Nation. It's like a sports writing site. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And his videos always had like a data analytics bend to them. Very like stats because, you know, sports have a lot of ridiculous stats. And he would make videos in Google Earth and kind of animate them in like a 3D PowerPoint style thing. Like he would m use maps of the earth and layer graphs on them that he like would import and do these very cool visualizations. And I wouldn't have called myself like a sports fan, but I think that he makes sports videos for people who aren't sports fans. His video on the, I think it's called the Bob emergency about like the rise and fall of people called Bob in American, or not <laughs> even American, in world sports. I think again, it's like two hours long and it is one of the best videos I've ever watched. Yes. It's absolutely extraordinary. So you said he's someone who makes sports videos for people who aren't interested yes. in sports. So do you see yourself as someone who makes science videos for people who aren't interested in science? That was like the conscious goal, I think. 
the issue I was running into when I was writing the the series on Hendrik Schoen, before I would like take video game footage, put it on the timeline, and you just, you know, narrate over it. That's very easy. All the footage you generate yourself. When you do like a documentary, you need to get footage like from somewhere. And there are three pictures of Hendrik Schoen on the internet, like three. And they're all like super JPEG'd. Wow. Wow. So I was like, how am I going to tell this story? There's like no video of this guy. How am I going to tell this story? And then I, you know, saw uh, John's work and it was like, okay, this is just like a 3D diorama. It's a PowerPoint. Like I can do that. I can try and do that. And there was no guide on how he did that. He's never like sat down and said, this is a step-by-step. So I just kind of sat down. I knew he did it in Google Earth and I just downloaded it and kind of reverse engineered it. And there is a video on my channel where I break that down. And it's very tough. I don't know how he does it. Like I've talked to him a little bit about some of the like secrets that like he has that I didn't quite figure out. And I'm like the patience that he must have to do all that. I'm like, I'm astounded because I I switched to Blender immediately after that series, Mm -hmm. which is a lot more accessible, actually designed for animation. To briefly jump in here, for people who aren't aware, Blender is a piece of free software that you can use to create 3D graphics. And this isn't something simple. You can use it to model fluids, you can model particles, you can sculpt custom objects. It's an incredibly powerful piece of software that if anyone is interested in making videos, and especially if you're interested in doing three-dimensional computer graphics, I can't recommend Blender highly enough as it's free and there's a huge number of tutorials out there. I use it pretty extensively in my videos and so does Kevin, just better. And I'm just like dumbfounded how he does it because I think he does all the animation himself. Like he writes with a bunch of people and researches, but he does the animation. I think that's kind of funny you say that because we had a call about I wanted to do this series on the history of global warming and I knew I wanted to do it in this style. And I tried to reverse engineer your videos about how you would do this. Then you talked us through it and me and my animator editor were just like, he's a maniac. How does he do this? And then we ended up trying it your way and it was like, okay, yeah, this is the only way you can do this. Yes. (laughs) Like our original idea is impossible. (laughs) It took like a while to figure out how he did it. And I was like, this is so, like there's so many specific orders and things. And like, if you mess up, if once you put stuff in Google Earth, you can't like select and then move everything around. Once you put something in, you're kind of locked into it. Oh my gosh. That's the oh, part wow. that I find crazy. And I don't know how he does it because like they, they have very, very intricate models. And that's why I only did it for like one series because I, cu- I couldn't imagine doing that again. Well, we talked a bit about your animation process and how that's developed, but can you tell us more about the process of making a video from sort of topic choice to it finally going out how involved are you do you have any team what are the stages so it, it is just still me I'll, I'll sometimes get people to help me out with like thumbnail art or you know i i use a lot of other, like royalty free music but all the research and the animation is me i take a while to pick topics because i don't know i just find that i don't want to repeat topics too much because like there's a lot of frauds in academia and i get a lot of requests for frauds like people send me recommendations or there's like a top 10 list of the most retracted authors and like you could go all through that and like do like a nice explainer and I think you could get a good story out of each of those but I think that a lot of them tend to overlap with stuff I've already done Mm -hmm. like Hendrik Schoen he faked a lot of papers the interesting thing there was the sheer number kind of thing and then once you go to the next person and it's like well they faked 10 papers 
well, that, that's just less impressive. And it, there's no, there's nothing really new. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never be shown. Yeah. It's like, that's kind of the, the dilemma I ran into. Like, I want to keep doing frauds, but I want to make each fraud, like there's new angle to it. Mm. At least like what I tried to do is the Bogdanoff twins, they didn't really fake anything, but people thought they did. So people thought it was a prank. So it's like, that was kind of like, what is a fraud? That kind of mm. conceptual thing. And then Victor Ninov, it's about a fraud, but it's also about like a race between Cold War superpowers as the backdrop. Mm. And that was interesting enough for me to like kind of make that the background. And then my recent one on the cloning fraud of Huang Wusuk, that brings in like bioethics, which is a whole other angle. And also like nationalism and politics at like funding science kind of thing. So all the topics I choose, I try and choose like a different angle that I haven't covered before. That's how you pick your topics. When you pick the topic, do you sort of have stated like learning objectives? What's the next step on from picking the subject area that you're going to cover? Yeah, there's a few ways I, I go about it. I don't necessarily like know I'm going to make a video until I've read a lot about a subject. So I, I like order a bunch of books. I, I try and look for at least one book that covers the whole story in one timeline because that's good to have like a chronological resource and then you can go deeper into that. So I order those and then eventually like as they come in, I read them while I'm working on other stuff. And then I kind of try and come up with like, what do I want to talk about? And then I try and outline, like I start with the chapter names and then I try to like mm. divide it up into sections that make sense to me, that makes a narrative out of it. Because th there's the fraud and then there's the technical aspect. Like there's the hook that people are interested in and then there's the science and I need to balance that. So I'm trying to, from a pacing standpoint, reel people in within like the first five minutes or so. Mm. And then I introduce some of the science because you can't understand the rest of it without the science. And it's it's hard to really hit that balance. Mm. I think I've done that better in certain videos than others. Like the Ninov video the, about faking an element. I start with like a hook about Enrico Fermi. Yeah, it's brilliant. He thought he made a new element, but he didn't. And then that's the fake out where it's like, the video is not about him. It's actually about this other guy. Zoom out, show a big timeline. And then that's what I try and make the hook. I always try to like zoom out and show the whole scope of the story to say like, here's where we're going to get to. And you zoom back in. So it's really trying to find a balance of how do you keep people engaged versus actually conveying them like the technical info they need to know to understand it. Yeah. So would it be fair to say that really what you're doing is trying to tell an engaging story and that people learn science along the way is kind of incidental almost? I mean, my goal is I want people to care about these like very boring things when they would otherwise not have, which is Going back to the sports thing, it's like, I don't care about these sports stats unless it's like given like a human narrative that you can like staple it onto. Mm. Yeah, I could just do like a very dry retelling of like the concepts, but I know that people are going to click away. So teaching people the concepts, it is like a Trojan horse. Yes. Yeah. You're giving people the concepts hidden amongst the narrative. I mean, it works, obviously. This is a question that I wasn't planning on asking, but something that just struck me and when I'm thinking of your videos, is the narratives are so excellent. Like the way that you put across like something and then it's like bait and switch. It's like, is it going to be about this? No, it's actually about this. Do you have much like writing experience? Because your background is in electronic engineering, which people wouldn't link to writing as well as you clearly write. So what is your relationship with writing? Not a ton. I remember English class was my worst grade in high school, <laughs> I, I was very bad at essays and I actually had my English teacher tell me that 
I wrote essays like I was writing a, a lab report. Oh, okay. It was obviously like I wasn't very good at the English class, but she meant that as like, oh, you're clearly better at like a different thing. And I, like, I wouldn't say, yeah, like I don't have a whole lot of training in terms of, I obviously took a, an engineering course and we only had three electives that weren't like science related. Mm. Mandated, we needed to take three electives and I took like geography. I took a course on innovation and a course on like the concept of time. The concept <laughs> of time. <laughs> That's such a great course. It was a course taught by a physics professor and every week he would bring in a new person to teach about time from biological time, geological time, literature. Honestly, one of my, like, I think my favorite course that I took. Wow. I love yeah. that. That's so creative. And those courses, it was a very limited amount of writing, but like I did like those courses where because that was the only time we were forced to write essays is those three courses. And then for your videos, I do find interesting that you write this whole story. And as you say, you're, you know, you know the whole story you're telling before you make the videos. How do you choose if you do a video in one as the Ninov story was versus breaking it into parts? Like what's that thought process? Yeah, th I mean, that's probably one of the hardest parts. I'm having that issue right now with the, the video I'm writing. It started as one and it's kind of ballooned to two. I think that most of what dictates that is size. How much have I written? When I wrote my very first, like Hendrix Schoen one that originally was going to be one part, then I went to two, and then I realized, okay, part one is half the size of part two. So I'm like, could it be three then? And then that's how I broke it up. But when I do that, like you need to write cliffhangers. You need people to want to watch the next part, but like you don't want the cliffhanger to be cheap. And, you know, I, I do get criticism yeah. from that mm. sometimes. Like I intentionally don't say now that videos are like part of a series because if, if you're on youtube and you see a 40 minute video that says part one you're not going to click on that yeah like even when it's in the thumbnail like it is technically you see it when you click on it i still get people who complain so i've just i've just stopped like putting it in the titles because it's like people are going to complain no matter what even if they watch the first part and enjoyed that that's better than if they just didn't click on the video at all kind of thing I feel like the phrase people are going to complain no matter what summarizes the internet, basically. <laughs> yes. And I think that the people who leave comments are actually like a minority of the people who watch your videos. I find that I'm guilty of thinking that the people who comment have the majority opinion and letting myself get swayed by that. So I, I try to like take a step back and, you know, write the stuff that I want to write because like if I don't enjoy it, then I don't, I don't know if the rest of my audience is going to enjoy it. That was a very long-winded answer. I don't know if that like fully answered the question. No, it was a great answer. It was a great <laughs> answer. A good answer. Really good. Well, do you read the comments then? Because you mentioned about what you see in the comments. A little too much, I think. There was a period where I like stopped reading the comments because it was putting me in a bad mood. So I let them pile up for a while. But every time I release a new video, I get sucked back into it because I just like reading them. Yeah, I do this too. Do you ever find, because I, I see this from time to time other places on the internet, I'll find your commenters on other videos. So when I found, for example, there was a recording of Hard Times Come Again No More that you used in the Super Collider series. Yes, yeah. All the comments on that are relating to your video. It's like this music had me non-linear. I did find that when I was Googling uploads of the song. I actually go in like sometimes if I want to like cheer myself up, I do actually occasionally like look at that one. Because it's just very nice. Yes. <laughs> Safe space. Because I originally, I didn't even plan to use that song in that video. Really? It's the perfect song for the ending. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but there's like a Swedish punk band that is called Desert Tron. 
which is the nickname that was given to that collider, ah. they have a whole song called the Rise and Fall of the SSC, where it's literally a song about the Texas Collider. And it is literally just talking about politicians and like holes in the dirt and billions spent and never getting finished and then the Higgs boson. And I desperately wanted to make it the credits theme for that series. And I like found the old singer for the band on Facebook and like asked if like I could like license it, but he didn't have the rights because it like some other thing had the rights. So I couldn't use it. So that was the backup song that I used. Oh, wow. It just, people seem to like it. So sometimes a mistake works out. I didn't realize that it's actually the theme song that America has in Civ 5, I think. Civ 5. So people thought, I think people think I'm referencing that. I just didn't realize. I just want to jump in here and say, I realize now, having listened back to the episode that we recorded, it's Civ 6, not Civ 5. Civilization 5 has a great soundtrack, but we're talking about the soundtrack Civilization 6. It's a minor point, but as somebody who plays these games, I know how important that is. So just, I know, okay. Did you know that link, Simon? I knew that link, but I didn't. I think when I got to the end of that series, I was so, I mean, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the call. I was so caught up in that moment of like melancholy and it was just such a perfect fit that I, my processing part of my brain was just turned off. I was along for the ride at that point. Yeah. And it was only afterwards that I was like, oh yeah, wait, it's an American song. It's used in Civ Five. It's very melancholy as a song. And it's this idea that, well, you know, shit's happened in the past doesn't mean shit's going to happen in the future. It's like the perfect thing. But in the moment, I was straight vibing, as the kids say. <laughs> the kids do say that, Simon. Captain's Log. We appear to be in a star-forming region of space, a nebula. But instead of large, bloated, loud balls of gas, the stars being formed here are very different. They're stars of online educational video, making long-form content about science, geopolitics, and video games, among other subjects. That's right, Captain Picard. Nebula is a streaming service owned by a collection of creators, including Sophie and I, that hosts innovative, educational, and inspirational content from some of your favorite video and podcast makers. You can listen to all episodes of How to Make a Science video ad-free on Nebula, but you can also watch exclusive content from other creators such as Our Changing Climate, Lindsay Ellis, Wendover Productions, and many more. Exclusive content includes individual videos from your favorite creators, but also entire series such as Jetlag and Red Atoms. Get access to Nebula by signing up at go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. That's our special How to Make a Science Video link. And by using it, you can get 40% off a membership plan and support the show. Again, that link is go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. Computer, put Nebula on the main view screen. Engage. So Kevin, back to sort of you and your videos rather than Civ 5, what do you see your role as within a video? Do you see yourself as someone who's done the research and now you're an expert? Are you sort of a curious student who's making your way along with the watcher? How do you position yourself? Like, I think I'm telling stories that like I am interested in. So like I have an investment in. I'm trying to like teach people about a topic they probably wouldn't have otherwise looked up. I'm not trying to be like an impartial narrator, I don't think. Like I I definitely have like a bias and I think that, yeah, like it comes through sometimes and I don't think I've, I don't think I'm trying to like give off the impression that I'm like an impartial 
narrator, but I think like, I'm not like a hard technical science communicator. I'm definitely like, I lean a little bit more to like the pop science side with the storytelling aspect. Yeah. And like, that's kind of where I've found that comfortable spot for myself. You do see yourself as a science communicator then, a pop science communicator. Yeah, definitely. But like not one of like the hard, concrete, like technical ones. Like I sometimes get into technical elements, but it's always following one specific case or one specific story. And you're not on camera because that's how the format works. Like you're you're in Blender. I mean, is that something that you think you would ever do? Or do you like having that separation of you as a person from the content that you make? Yeah, I'm just, I'm a lot more comfortable with it. I have done videos where I film myself in person. I have one on, it's like this old Cold War bunker in, in Ottawa. And it was fun and a nice short video. I just like, I find the logistics of filming on camera is so much extra work. I'm like way more self-conscious about what I'm doing with my face and my hands. I don't know. Like, it's not for me. It's just so much easier to make a two-hour timeline in Blender and, you know, do it that way. <laughs> Which you always thinking. Like, look at the videos you make and it's like, I just put my face in a camera and talk. I did a vlog for like half an hour and I found that so exhausting. I was like, how do people do this? I did it once and I was like, this is not for me. I feel like when you're a YouTuber who doesn't show your face, there becomes this mystery around your face. But because your face is on your channel, do you get people being like, oh, wait, there he is, like kind of hunting down that video? Like, do you think there is that mystery around your face? I don't think there's that much mystery. People will go back and see the videos where I am actually in it and be like, oh, that's what he looks like. I definitely don't want that like... Face reveal. Yeah, people are trying to hunt it down and like... It's weird, weird ...post points. pictures of my face. Like, that's too much hassle. I'm very indifferent to having my face out there. I've known a few high profile YouTubers who, you know, were originally behind this camera and either they did a face reveal or I met them in person. Not once have I ever been able to guess what they look like. No. And this is another example. Like, I don't know what I imagined you looked like, but somehow, and this is a podcast, so it's, you know, a useless comment, but it is interesting that, you know, like you have this idea of a YouTuber that you only hear. And I think maybe especially when you do the kind of video that you do, like as an explainer or a science communication thing, that you have this idea in your head of what someone who makes that kind of video looks like. And you're never right because there's just this huge diversity of people that make this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's true. Another question I had for you, Kevin, slash, I, always, I keep wanting to call you Bobby. You must get that people call you Bobby. Yeah. I do too. That's fine. A lot of people think my name is Bobby. Yeah, I mean, I did. What is the origin of Bobby Broccoli? Do you get asked that a lot? Uh, yeah. So I went to, I think I was like 13. I went to a summer camp. It was mad skills cartooning i always like make <laughs> wait what sorry i wasn't sorry, what, what, I wasn't what, what do you mean that on the whole summer camp you were learning yeah. how to do cartooning but it had to be in the form of mad, mad skills. skills there's a local college in ottawa that does like they call them career samplers where it's a two-week camp where they you're basically doing like a college program but for two weeks and i did like they have kitchens there so i did a culinary one and then i did a cartooning one like comic strip and I made a comic strip about a talking vegetable called Bobby Broccoli. Oh, nice. And it was like, because I like, I just wrote the comic strips that I liked reading. And then I did that for like two years. And I, have, I had a website where I posted my comic strips. And then that was actually the very first video on my channel is me advertising that website. And I, I kept that username. I think the domain went down because it was like, my dad was paying for it for years. And he's like, do you want to renew this? And I was like, probably not. Oh, but that's the username I kept on everything since. So it's just become my online persona. 
I love it. Wow. Have you had any videos on the channel, Bobby Broccoli, that have surprised you in any way, whether it's audience reaction or any way you've been surprised? I mean, I was surprised that the pivot in my content from video games to like science stuff worked so well. Like, obviously, I got a lot of new followers, like 95% of my subscribers flooded in like within a year. So obviously, that whole new audience is just like used to my new content. But even the people who were there like beforehand were like, oh, this is neat. This is different. Mm. And I get people commenting like, you're the guy who did this video on Spongebob like 10 years ago. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> and next it's going to be like the fraud behind Patrick Starr. <laughs> I used to be known as like one of the Spongebob YouTube people. Me and another friend, like that was our thing for a while. And now that's obviously not my thing anymore. But like... I really never expected to like get to this level, obviously. Wow. You were like a feature creator at SpongeCon, if that's a thing. <laughs> never been to SpongeCon, no. I was trying to imagine what the group name would be. And I keep thinking of the Bikini Bottoms, and I, I don't that think that's probably what you want to be known as. All the Krusty Krabs, also no, not great. Yeah. <laughs> something that came out of this discussion for me, Sophie, was something that was common to a lot of the creators we spoke to, which is huge pivots in either style or content of videos. Because, you know, Bobby originally made Spongebob Squarepants videos. And he had the gaming phase as well. Which was common to several creators. And I, I just find that super interesting that what you take from each phase that you go through, from your gaming phase, from your Bikini Bottoms phase... Krusty Krabs, yeah. From the Krusty Krabs, informs how you do everything else going forwards. And so if you're making science videos as somebody who made gaming videos previously, you're making them differently to anyone else. No one else has that set of experiences. And I think that only makes the stuff you make richer. And I think another thing that makes the videos richer is when you've spent time making other videos, it feels like even more of a conscious choice of now I'm going to turn my attention to making science fraud documentaries. Like it feels like you've grown into this being the type of content you want to make rather than, well, this is what I started making and I'm going to carry on doing it. And it's not necessarily um, the, the subject matter that changes. It can be the style as well. Like the stuff that Kevin makes now is wildly different to the 3DS video that he made, for example. And it was only by reverse engineering the John Boyce style videos that he found something that's really resonated with him. But he wouldn't have been led to that had it not been through all the other experiences that he'd gone through previously. And I think we often think of growth as a steady process, but it can also be you grow to a point of stopping and then you have to start afresh, but then suddenly the thing you've made is at a much higher level because of all the skills you learned before, rather than this steady morphing from SpongeBob into science frauds. Communication is cumulative. Great. Put that on some branding. <laughs> t-shirts coming soon i mean do you see another pivot going forward because obviously that's quite a significant change in terms of content and style but i mean do you see yourself making this kind of content on this kind of subject matter for say the next five ten years or do you think it will change i have no plans to like change it now i think maybe the topics will change like obviously i'm like the academic fraud guy i think a lot of people know me as but like people thought i was the physics guy and then i did biology and then i did chemistry slowly broadening. My next video is not on academic fraud. It's a very different, it's going to be more similar to the Collider series. Really, it's just going to be the topics I cover that are going to change over time. Because I, at a certain point, I like I am running out of ideas with the fraud angle. And unless I find a new one, I'm not going to do like a fraud 
video for a while. Is CRISPR on your list? CRISPR? Like CRISPR and the genetic modification. I guess it's similar to the one you've just done because of cloning. It's very like similar vibes. I'm very hesitant about getting back into biology because like it's not my field. And obviously I can read a lot. Mm -hmm. It takes longer for me to feel comfortable talking about the subjects as opposed to physics where it's like I know a lot more quickly like I can get a handle on things. Mm. Well, good on you for having that barrier because a lot of people don't. <laughs> like, I know about this thing, so I must know about everything else. I feel like my research time has like increased steadily since I like pivoted to full time because I no longer have that time pressure. Mm. So I'm like, I can take as long as I want, but it's like, well, no, at a certain point I need to make something. Otherwise, it's just going to be a research hole that I stay in forever. Yeah. Know that feeling. Good grief do I know that feeling. Good grief, Simon, yeah. Yeah. We finish these chats by asking our guest the same five rapid-fire questions, starting with... If you had a million dollars to make a video, what video would you make? I think I would want to take a crack at, like, you know, a more traditional documentary style where I get a film crew and I go and interview people in the field, in their offices. Topic-wise, I'm not 100% sure because, like, I'm always changing those out, but I think I would want to combine, like, the animation with a more traditional documentary approach. Like if you have a filming company, you can contact someone and maybe have a little more access than you would if you contact someone and say, hey, I'm a YouTuber, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, maybe that will change going forwards. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we are still technically new media, right? You know, TV was once. And speaking of, what one change would you make to YouTube to improve the website? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like as creators, we like to complain about YouTube a lot. But actually coming up with a specific solution is surprisingly hard. Yeah, yeah. it's like there's a lot of changes that like I would like to make. But obviously, like you can't just make like one at a time. I think that it would be nice if there was more indication for why things go wrong with a video. Mm -hmm. I feel particularly vulnerable because I produce videos so infrequently that I find there's actually like anxiety I have when I hit upload because I'm like, what if it gets a copyright claim immediately that it didn't detect before? Or what if it just completely bombs and now it's three, four months before my next video? I don't know why this one didn't do well. They only want to like reveal behind the curtains so much. It's also hard to just say why this one not do well versus this one. But if there are any like tools to kind of like figure out why certain videos tank or how to know more about your audience and what they want kind of thing. It's like a traceback. If you run code and something goes wrong, you want to know where which line has gone wrong in the code. Yeah, like sometimes YouTube will say like, good job, more people are watching your video because we're showing it to more people. And that's like a weird chicken and the yeah. egg thing where it's like, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. yeah. Why are you showing it to more people? It's just like non-information, but it's good information kind of thing. Yeah, circular statements. Next question. What do you think educational video will look like in 10 years' time? How will it differ to now? I would like to think that visualizations will get better. I mean, yeah, like I obviously do a lot of 3D animation stuff. I think that I do get comments from like teachers who say like, oh, I used one of your videos in my class kind of thing. I think that YouTube is becoming a much more prevalent source in like regular classrooms and I think that obviously like there's been long running series on YouTube, like Crash Course, that's just like part of a curriculum now for a lot of schools. Mm. I think that YouTube or YouTube equivalent is going to be around in 10 years and it's going to 
just be more and more common for schools to be using. So like shorter bite-sized edutainment almost to get people invested. Have you heard of anybody whacking one of your videos on as like, I'm walking away, you know? I don't know about walking away. People have said they watched the Ninov one as like a whole course, like just one class, because that is like kind of the perfect length. It's like 70 minutes. Wow. And that one's good for their nuclear chemistry section. And I've, I actually have like kind of taken that into account in some of my writing. I'm like, maybe I should tone back the language here. Or, yeah, yeah, like I'm obviously very opinionated in some of my videos. So like I try and keep that in mind sort of thing. Like what if someone did use this for a course? So I'm trying to find that balance. Oh, interesting. So you have held back a bit then in some videos, maybe. Sometimes like I don't swear a whole lot in my videos, but like sometimes for like the extra emphasis, I try like I'll throw in like one or two because like I think it's warranted sometimes. It's a condiment. You're you're emphasizing a point and like. (laughs) When it's so rare, it really does yeah. work. Yeah, it's like it's also like hard to like when you're talking about bioethics and like medical procedures. It's like sometimes you really need to stress just how like disgusting certain actions are from certain people. Yeah. Okay, penultimate question. What is one creator, apart from people on this call, that you think everybody should watch? John is probably the obvious one because like I owe like my success to his style that same vein of he makes sports videos for people who don't like sports. I'm trying to make science videos for people who would normally not like science. I think he's obviously the most direct inspiration and I owe him a lot for that style. Would it be dumb to recommend like my friend who like, helped me out a lot, like in the, the early days? You can do so if you wish. Yeah, do anything you want. You're the guest. So this was actually the SpongeBob friend that I, I met like a oh, long time ago. The we other both, bikini bottom. Yes. Yeah, so, so like we met through like having videos about SpongeBob online. Turns out he lives in like Montreal. He's like not too far away. This is my friend Lamhoot is, is the YouTube name. He is a like a computer science engineer. He talks a lot about video games, but he does it from a computer science standpoint, like programming, modeling, that sort of thing. And he has a very interesting like cultural perspective that he brings to video games because he's like uh, he comes from like an immigrant family in like Montreal. So he, he brings a very interesting like intersection of technology, engineering and like culture to video games that is like an angle that I haven't really seen tackled before. Great answer. Oh. Lam Hoot. Good wreck. Yes. Cool. Again, not including anyone on the call or anyone you shouted out so far, but what is one video that you think everyone should watch? So the channel Let Me Know, he used to do like top 10 videos, just like, you know, top 10 Rick and Morty facts or top 10 spooky stories. And it was like, he got very big. And then he just like did a complete pivot to really well animated, like mystery explanation videos. So there's like, oh. he had one on like the Dyatlov Pass incident or like there's an hour long one on Jack the Ripper but the one like that I think I got onto his channel for was this really well animated one on D.B. Cooper, the airplane hijacker who escaped and was never found. And stylistically, I remember being very influenced by that in terms of the pacing, all these custom animations. I think it's custom music sometimes, too. I was like, wow, that's kind of an aesthetic I want to bring to my videos if I can do that. Oh, I've never heard of them. Before, yeah, I, I feel like I've seen the top 10 videos when they did them. It was like top 10s on literally anything. Yeah. It's such a big pivot. It's so different to what he used to do. I really admire pivots like that. Like I'm always impressed. And when they really work out. You reach critical mass and then it's like, I can do whatever I want now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
so Sophie, this was a really interesting discussion with Kevin. What do you think was your main takeaway from it? Just how excellent he is at narratives and making a narrative. I think that point of the bait and switch and what is this going to be about? And I was amazed when he said that... I know, writing, that English was his worst subject. Yeah, it really, it shook me because I just thought here's someone who knows how to craft a great story and story is so important for bringing people in. It makes people invested in the science. And like he said, he, when you've got a good story in place, you can just Trojan horse the yeah, science Yeah, people in will there. learn by stealth. Exactly. What about you? I think the thing that really interests me about Bobby Broccoli videos and about Kevin's stuff is the style and hearing how much effort it was to reverse engineer that John Boyce style um, frankly the idea of uh doing everything in google earth baffles me I, I still don't know how john boyce makes his videos but just how much effort it took for him to work that out and this was obviously a style that resonated with him so much that it was worth all of that effort and he took something that was very definitely someone else's style and folded that in with all of his experiences and made it his own the, the videos he makes are unique they're uniquely his and I guess it was just super interesting to hear how he arrived at his version of what a video is. Yeah, that's such a good point, actually, because I think I at least can feel a bit anxious about being inspired by other people because I think I need to make something completely original to me. Mm. But it's very normal to see things you like in what other people make and then co-opt it into something that is genuinely unique and your own. Well, the, the, the negative version of that is everything is a remix, mm. right? Like there are no original ideas under the sun. But I, I think um, the more constructive way of looking at that is it's almost like fusion food. Mm -hmm. It's like recipes being created that are, yes, borrowing from all these different other cuisines around the world, but you're making something that's uniquely representing who you are as a chef, say, and the city that you live in, but that's never been made before. Who cares if some of the ingredients are shared with other stuff? What you've made is yours it's unique exactly that is all for this episode next time we're talking to i'm angela collier and i post on a collier astro there's that version of science communicator who like slides into frame and they're like i'm so excited about this and there's that version who's like standing in front of a whiteboard i would put myself in the middle of that like i kind of have a conversation i want to convince you to be excited about the thing i'm excited about Thank you again to Kevin for joining us. You can watch his videos at youtube.com forward slash Bobby Broccoli. Thank you for listening to How to Make a Science Video, a Nebula podcast. The producer was me, Simon Clark. Our music and editing were provided by Fergus Hall and our artwork by Lizzie Fierkowski. If you enjoyed this episode, please do recommend the podcast to your friends and rate us on your podcasting service of choice. Yes. <laughs>